the first film made in this country was a film made by Cecil Hepworth of the state entry of Queen Victoria in 1900. Uh, the, the years from 1896, when the first films were made here, uh, which were made, by the way, by a Lumiere operator, and which are now in the Cinémathèque Française, uh, these early years, the footage which survives is not, I regret to say, very great. But when one reaches the year 1920, the footage increases many-fold. Mm. Uh, and from 1920 onwards, we have, in fact, a very rich store of material. George Morrison, on some of the earliest films shot in Ireland, which he incorporated in the Gwaylin historical compilation, Misha Era. All of those early films were, of course, of actual events. As distinct from actualities, of course, the first actualities were taken in 1896 by a Lumiere operator, and who came back, actually, in the following year, um, though Paul also, two months later, uh, uh, also made one or two animatograph films in Ireland. But the first news films that I know to be made by an Irishman um, are probably the films of... Uh, events or topical interest events of films of railway building in the Transvaal by Dr. Mitchell, uh, who took these in 1898. Also, uh, the first, uh, one of the first films of topical events in Ireland was the consecration of our Mar Cathedral uh, in 1904-05 by, uh, um, by the Irish Animated Photo Company. The film was shown in 1905. I think it may have been made in the last days of 1904. Once the new moving pictures had been acclaimed by the public, Irish entrepreneurs were not slow to see their commercial possibilities. Naturally, people who had already been associated with the Magic Lantern in the 80s and 90s were first to move with the times. And Ted Main of the well-known bookselling firm of Erskine Main in Belfast recalls how it was with his family. My grandfather a lot of lecturing on the temperance movement and uh, showed lantern slides to illustrate his talks. And then uh, I, the, the cinema would uh, come along to us, I suppose, in the early 1900s. We had a man called Billy John Hogan, very well known in uh, Belfast, who pioneered the early picture houses here. And he held the first, while he was working with us, he held the first uh, cinema license. I don't in quite... Belfast, uh, probably in Ireland? I would say in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I would say in Ireland, yes. What that meant exactly, I'm not quite sure. Whether it was a safety precaution or a uh, qualification, I don't quite know. Well, they did bring the film around the country in those days. Oh, they, indeed. They hired them out, did they? There was, uh, yes. It was a popular form of entertainment all over the country. Um, we used to, remember, uh, use jaunting cars to transport our gear. It was large gear. I remember a big black box to house the projector and its films in one compartment, and then the large, heavy iron cylinders of oxygen and coal gas, I think it was. And these were used uh, to make the light, of course, uh, by uh, projecting a flame from the front onto a, 
a round cylinder of lime or limestone, which was on a vertical spindle. And uh, of course, everything used to get pretty hot from time to time. But, um, the this had to be changed too, hadn't it? It would yes. burn out pretty quickly, wouldn't it? The operators it? seemed to be pretty nippy at that. I was very young at the time, but I remember them nipping in with tongs and turning it round or whipping it off between reels and whipping another one on again and then lighting up the flame so that there wasn't much uh, disjointedness in the, in the show. People like Ted Main were afterwards to be associated with the production of films in Ireland. But even before feature films were made here, Irish actors and actresses had played parts in films produced elsewhere. Michal MacLeomore, as a child actor, was one of them, as he told Liam O'Leary. I made a series of films playing very minor child's boys' parts. Yes. With Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree, with whom I was playing at the time at His Majesty's Theatre on the Living Stage. Yeah. I played with him in Macbeth, in Henry VIII, as a page only, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, as Robin, the only boy part yeah. in it. Charming, too, yeah. very charming. And we had great fun in those days, but there was much less tight drilling of the stage set and where yeah. you, which, which knob you hit with your foot and yeah. so on. Yeah. That seemed not to exist in those days. What, what, was Reginald Barker associated with any of those productions? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. I, I, I was just wondering, did Trey, did Trey direct himself? Or? I think he did. Yeah. But there was a, a technical film director, yeah. of course. Yeah. Trey decided yeah. on certain... Now, now, you did other ones. Now, I just can't remember the titles, but what was Enoch Arden one? I was in Enoch Arden. Yeah. I seem to remember yes. seeing a review. I played the boy in that, I forget his name. Of Young Master. Micah Dow. That's right. Micah yes. Dow was... Because I remember your name being mentioned in a review that I came across. And I remember somebody say, looking at me and saying, "Cause you look like a gypsy. Yeah. I don't know why he said that, but he yeah. did. But were, were, were there any other films like that that you did? I, I can't... I, yes, I played with Chrissy White, who was a great English star. That's right, time. yes. And Alma... What was her name? Uh, um, uh, oh, Alma Jim, Taylor. Alma Taylor. Yeah. Chrissy White. Yeah. And Henry Henry Edwards. Henry Edwards, I was going to say two or three male stars. Yeah. Who were all very kind to me, and that's all I remember about. I remember going to Scotland too to do Coming Through the Rye. Oh, uh, oh you yes, that was I the Hepburn, that was the Hepburn production. Yes. You were in that. I was in that. And I was also in um, The Little Minister. Oh yes. Of J. M. Barry. Yeah. Oh, I was in two or three films. Yeah. I'd forgotten a lot about yeah. them because to me, they were just adventures on the side yeah. in the middle of my theatrical engagement. Garrod O'Loughlin was another Irish actor who worked in films abroad in the early years. He had been sent to Denmark by Arthur Griffith in 1907 to set up the nucleus of an Irish consular service in Europe as a preparation for independence. He worked first as a teacher, but he always had ambitions as an actor. What I had in mind when I went to Copenhagen was to try and get in to the acting business because I'd been acting for about three years with the National Players in Dublin, uh, the little group formed by Dudley Diggs. He was formerly, of course, a juvenile lead in the company of the Fay brothers, you know, Frank and Willie Fay, who uh, were, the made, were the first company that started the Abbey. Well, anyhow, I uh, thought, well, pictures are going strong, 
because there are quite a lot of picture theatres, and uh, one big producing company, the Nardis Film Company, and another, a couple of minor ones. So uh, I happened to meet a friend of mine there who was connected with the Danny or Beer Film Company. He was a sort of secretary out there, so he, he advised me to go out and see them, you see, and try and get work in the pictures there. So I went out and I was enrolled uh, on my face value, perhaps. <laughs> and um, I began then. And the very first picture I got into was one about uh, a band of, well, smugglers, uh, romantic, exciting story, you see, and about the police chief. It was supposed to take place in an island, uh, something like Corsica, you know. Some of the best of the early feature films were made in Europe, but it was an American company which was first to produce that type of film in Ireland. In the first decade of the century, Calum was one of the largest film companies in the United States, and Canadian-born Sidney Olcott was one of its most talented directors, a pioneer in taking the camera out of the studio and in placing his actors against a natural open-air background. It's just 66 years ago that he came to Ireland to produce the first American feature film ever made outside that country. Annie O'Sullivan of Beaufort Killarney recalls how he decided to come to Ireland. He started off on the stage, and I don't know how long he was on the stage when he decided to go into films. They were new at the time. And I don't know how long he was in films. When um, he was called into the head office one day in New York, and the map of the world was placed before him. And they said, we will send you anywhere you would like best to go. And he pointed to the little island at the top of the map, and he said, I would like to go there. Because his mother was born in Ireland, I think that was I. Well, they came to Killarney that year, and they made a film called The Lad from Old Ireland. And that was such a success with the Irish in America that they decided to send a full company the next year. They came again in June stayed a few days in Killarney, and then he thought Killarney wouldn't suit him, he would rather be in the country. And he was asked, he asked if there was any place out in the country. So Mr. Graham told him, Beaufort. So he came to Beaufort. And I suppose it was the scenery as much as anything else. And there were plenty of horses out here too, plenty and they wanted horses, oh, didn't yes. they? Plenty of horses and plenty of young people, you know, boys and girls. So um, anyway, they settled in and they started into work at once. This was in your father's place? In my father's uh, place, yes. He owned a guest house here at he that did. time. yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, the first picture they made that year then was Gypsies in Ireland. Then came Rory O'Moore, Colleen Bourne, Arna Pogue, Sean the Post, Khanda Shaharan, you remember Ellen, Leon Eel, and I don't know how many more. There were piles of them anyway that year. They made about one a week, didn't they? Oh, they did, yes. Yeah. At least that. In the Ireland of 65 years ago, when all films and filmmakers were regarded with suspicion, 
and as possible subverters of public morals, it's not really surprising, I suppose, that someone should eventually raise objections to the activities of the Calum Company around Killarney. Robert G. Vignola, afterwards a director and producer in Hollywood, was then assistant director of the company, and in 1953 he recorded for us this account of how their work was brought to a standstill for almost a week. One Sunday morning, about a couple of months after our arrival, I attended high mass at the village church. Jack Clark and his mother, Alice Hollister, and the two O'Sullivan girls attended the same service. The point came where the priest was to read the gospel. He ascended a few steps to the pulpit and read it. Then, placing aside his prayer book, there was a dramatic pause. With a grim look on his face and a menacing tone in his voice, he announced, Instead of the usual sermon this morning, I want to talk about these tramp photographers that are invading our community. Then came a tirade of accusations that knocked us cold. He accused us of being there to degrade the Irish, said we were taking pictures of poor thatched roof homes instead of photographing the new modern buildings they have in Ireland, that he saw a couple with their faces all painted, making love in front of the old church graveyard, desecrating the bones of our ancestors, that they were joined by a man wearing the garb of a priest. His face was painted too, which is a disgrace to our vestment. That he saw many of our fine lads marching around in the uniform of old English soldiers, selling their souls to the devil for a few paltry shillings. That Mr. O'Sullivan should be ashamed of himself for keeping us at his hotel. That he was going to report us to the Knights of Columbus in the United States. He warned the people not to let us photograph their homes. That we should be driven out of town by them all getting together with sticks and stones and chasing us across the Beaufort Bridge. This was a terrific shock to the entire congregation, especially the O'Sullivan girls who left the church in tears. The altercation between the local priest and the filmmakers was eventually sorted out, and the Calum Company worked in Killarney each summer from 1911 until the outbreak of war in 1914. The company included such actors as Pat O'Malley, who was of Irish descent, and Jack McGowan, an Australian and a fine horseman, who was well known for his westerns during the silent period and who is also remembered as director of the sentimental sound film Little Nellie Kelly. Jean Gontier, the leading lady in most of the Killarney films, was one of the first scriptwriters the screen ever had, and she afterwards founded her own filmmaking company with her husband, Jack Clark. But many of the local people around Beaufort also found a brief moment of fame in the Calum films. Annie O'Sullivan. I was in um, the Kerry Dancers, I think. That was about all. Very small parts, you know. You were a dancer? Oh, dancing. Uh, crossroads yeah. dancers, yes, wasn't that what it yes, was? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. My brother, um, Ned, took a fairly good, important part. He played the priest. And um, 
the old, you know, the father of Jean, so on. And, uh, fairly important parts. He was good too. And a lot of the local lads rode horses and did that sort of thing. Yes, oh, there were piles of horses needed for the films, you know. They did soldiers and everything, the red coats, of course, all that. They had a, a special set built too in your father's yard, hadn't they? They put a they built a platform in the Haggart, and on that platform they took all the interiors built up whatever they wanted, you know. And they went around the country then for the exteriors. And made full use, of course, of the beautiful scenery oh, around Killarney. Yes. And he always picked out, seemed to pick out the nicest background. He had a great eye for scenery. Mm -hmm. uh, could you just tell us some of the places he used now for particular places? The Colleen Bond now, for example. <coughs> that was the lower lake. She was thrown off that, you know, and into the water, and then Miles McCoughlin rescued her. But it was nearly all round here, I think, the Colleen Bond was taken. Mm -hmm. Round Beaufort and Killarney, and the Gap. Tell us something about Rory O'Moore, which was one of their famous films. I think it was 1911 it was made. Uh, 1911, that was the nicest. I thought that was the nicest picture of all. It started there at the waterfall. Kearney's waterfall. Rory and, and um, Kathleen met there, you know. And this spy, Bob Vignola, did the spy, and he um, saw them and informed the Ridcoats. And then the chase was on down through the mountains. It was most exciting. And he got to the lake, to the shore of the upper lake, and he sprang into the lake, escaping from the Ridcoats. And um, then one of the soldiers volunteered, who happened to be my brother, to go out and catch him. But the soldier got into difficulties, and Rory turned back and saved the soldier. Then the officer in charge, who was Jack McGowan, because of his bravery, he wanted to let Rory free, and no, Bob Vignola wouldn't have it. He was the spy, of course, and he wanted his money. So they took him away, took him a prisoner, and he was tried on the platform and found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. But on the platform, the priest cut the rope and Rory escaped and off to America. That was the story of Rory O'Moore. Didn't something happen as the horse was going across the river? He oh, stumbled. Oh, yes, yes, the little black horse. He, um, that was an accident, you know, the horse stumbled and Rory was thrown off his back. And he went out of the picture and August had stopped the picture. And the cameraman didn't stop the picture. He kept on going and he said, come on, Jack, come on. He was directing them for a while and Jack came back and came on. He'd have to lose the horse in any case, you see. And it just fitted in nicely. It was more effective even it than the original. More, it was really, yes. Mm -hmm. Rory O'Moore is one of the Calum films which has survived, and it has been shown a couple of times on television. It was also a film to which objections were raised by the British authorities of the time, because it was alleged to favour Irish nationalists. It's of interest that one of the Calum players, Pat O'Malley, was made an honorary member of the Irish Volunteers just before the outbreak of World War I. 
Donal O'Cahill, afterwards the scriptwriter for The Dawn, the best-known film ever made in Killarney, recalls the incident and the days of the Calums. I remember them on some occasions charging through the town, I think some of them on horses, and uh, made up, of course, for some particular shots they were shooting. Mm -hmm. There was great fun in Killarney while they were here, anyhow. Oh, they gave... Uh, we had great fun. There was great fun, considerable excitement and some employment. There were a lot of local chaps who did some acting for them. Um, on horseback and that sort of thing, oh, riding uh, around? In all, in all ways. Uh, riding and uh, running in some cases where they were fugitives or something. <laughs> yes. Do you remember Pat O'Malley? I do, but uh, I didn't know Pat O'Malley very well then. It was only in comparatively recent years I got to know Pat very well when he visited Killarney on a few occasions, and we used to exchange uh, Christmas cards. Do you remember when he was here and he was made an honorary volunteer? Yes, that was because uh, the volunteers had been founded. They had very few guns, only wooden guns at the time, and for some purpose or other they wanted uh, uh, a loan of guns, and the Calum Company very kindly offered them, gave them. In consequence, Pat was made an honorary volunteer. How did the Calum Company get the guns? That I do not know. They possibly brought them in as part of their props. In that same pre-war period, Sidney Alcott and the Calum Company made one of their most successful films, From the Manger to the Cross, in Palestine and Egypt. And Alcott added to his reputation in later years in Hollywood when he directed such stars as George Arliss in The Green Goddess, Gloria Swanson in The Hummingbird, Paula Negri in The Spanish Dancer, and Rudolph Valentino in Monsieur Beaucaire. He was also highly thought of in Killarney, where he did his real pioneering work. Well, we thought he was very good, and the, the whole company thought the same. He must have been a very good director, but he was very exact as to detail. And the smallest thing he would notice, and stop the camera at once, you know. But there was one particular scene I remember. It was supposed to be a night scene. And there were candles lighting. And there was a breeze blowing and the candles were flickering. And he was watching them and then he decided, we'll take it, George. So they started to take it and quite suddenly they stopped the camera. We thought that someone of ourselves had done something wrong because he'd blow off your head nearly if you did anything wrong. But no, it was that one of the candles blew out, and that wouldn't do. You mm. see, it was supposed to be an interior scene. Yes. You see, and needless to say, there was no... It wasn't an interior scene, it was only just on the platform. Well, how did they get on with the, the local boys and girls? Very well. He thought they were very good. He hadn't very much trouble with them at all. He said they were very good actors and actresses. He said they were all so, so natural, it was easy to direct them. From the pioneer filmmakers and their work, we move now to the places in which the films were shown. In Ireland, the first public film exhibition was exactly 80 years ago, in Dan Lowry's Star Theatre of Varieties in Dame Street, Dublin. The billing was for the tremendously expensive engagement of the Lumiere Cinematograph, the grand original European sensation, living people brought from all parts of the world and placed in real-life action on the stage. The emphasis on the stage was not accidental. 
because those early films generally came at the tail end of a variety show in an established theatre. However, as the films became longer and eventually capable of carrying a whole evening's entertainment themselves, radical changes had to be made to accommodate them. Dublin's first full-time cinema was the Volta in Mary Street, and its association with James Joyce as manager makes it of interest not only to film historians, but to literateurs. The projectionist on that night when it first opened its doors on the 20th of December 1909 was an Italian named Guido. His assistant was a Dublin electrician, Lenny Collinge, now nearly 87 years of age. He actually worked on the reconstruction of the Volta as a cinema. Mr Sheehan was the man who had the contract for wording it. I was on the wording of it. That's how he come there. That's how he come doing the wording. And then um, Joyce himself was, was up there at times to interpret, you know. But uh, he'd disappear then. You wouldn't see him. But uh, did um, we, we, we asked him uh, about... There was a, the sandwich board man used to go along there in procession, you know. And um, the discussion uh, come along about uh, whether it was um, degrading to be to have a sandwich bowl. So uh, I, 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 I said no once he was doing So we went to uh, Joyce. Joyce was standing there and we asked him. He, he wasn't a bit surprised or anything to ask him the question. So he said no. There was no one. Once a man was uh, doing a walk, honest walk around, that uh, there was nothing wrong with it, but very commendable that uh, he, he mightn't have been able to do any other walk, do you know? And so... Um, that uh, solved the, the problem for the two of us about him. The two principal films shown at the opening of the Volta were rather solemn, particularly for the Christmas season. One from France dealt with the first orphanage in Paris, and the other from Italy told the tragic story of Beatrice Cenci, executed in 1599 for killing her father. It was Joyce's job to bring these rather esoteric subjects to the notice of the public in a language they could understand and he personally prepared most of the posters used. The fact that Francesco Novak, the bicycle salesman turned cinema manager, hadn't a word of English didn't help matters, but it had its lighter moments. Lenny Collinge. Prior to that, they, um, there was no sign of, of the manager or the, um, or, the uh, or Joyce, and the Italian Novak himself coming over to me anyways showing me, don't you know? And I had a little bit... He was showing you what? Uh, he'd show where, where the lights were. Oh, yes. The this was when you were actually go. working on yes. the... Uh, wiring the yes, place. Yes, yes. And he... Um, he was very bad English, you know, very bad. Well, I, I had known a, a bit of French at school, don't you know? And I said, sur l'amour. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, he was delighted then when he heard this about sur l'amour. And he said to me, sur l'amour. <laughs> in Italian, you see. Yes, yes. So that was, that was how I got in with them. And they were very kind to me then. They used to uh, come out and um, they, they, if they were going somewhere, they'd bring me with them, do you know? And uh, they were, we went in, we were training him up to talk. We were t training him up in little English. And we brought him into a pub and he um, called for the drink, you know? A bottle of stout. With a frightful Dublin accent, <laughs> you know. Yes. That was uh, that was one of the things now I remembered about them. Do you remember the opening night at all, Lenny? 
My f that uh, was in December 1909. Yes, yes. I can't remember exactly then. I only remember I, I, the I know that Joyce himself says that just before it opened, some, some Sinn Féin electrician went off and left him. Would that have been mm. you, Bay? A no. Sinn Féin electrician went off and <laughs> left him in the lodge. No, no. <laughs> no one, I'm all now. That's a possibility. Because I, I, I had finished my time, you see. You were an apprentice up to that? Up to that. Well, I, I, in 1909, I was... Uh, finished, uh, uh, I was an electrician, you know, I was an apprentice in 1906, and that was the third year. Now, that's very probable. That's very probable there was nobody there, because there was a frightful, uh, the, the, we must have been left there, because there was a frightful, they had, um, trying to make up, um, they had no resistances. Uh, uh, if you know about an operating room, you know, they, there's a resistance there for adjusting the light. And they had none of these. They had to make up a, a frightful um, business. And they were, on the machine itself, there was no take-up, you know. Mm -hmm. And the, the film used to run into a big tank. You see? And, and you had to reassemble it then well, afterwards? After that, then, we used to uh, rewind it. Rewind it, yes. Re rewind the film, and it had to be taken out of the out of this uh, Zinc, zinc thing, you know, and put onto the rewinder, and then it was all come along the floor, and everything was in a frightful state of scratch when it went on again. But nobody minded that at that time because it was new, you know, it was yeah. new, and they used to love it. When James Joyce opened the Volta in Dublin, it was his intention to establish cinemas in Belfast and Cork as well. In fact, however, he left Dublin and returned to Trieste immediately after the Volta opening. But as Dennis Ireland told us about 11 years ago, he did do some prospecting in Belfast. Around about the year 1909, I understand that James Joyce came here looking for halls in which to start cinemas uh, for the opposite number to the Volta that eventually started in Dublin. He didn't find the halls, but there's one point of comedy that uh, interests me about that visit. Was He was accompanied by one of his friends in Trieste, a gentleman, I think, who ran a bicycle shop. And Joyce's father always referred to this gentleman as the hairy mechanic in the lion tamer's coat. Yes, yes. But uh, that's a little incident that I don't think many people know about here in Belfast, that Joyce was here looking for cinema, for a hall in which to start a cinema. I think he went to Cork at the same time. He went to he? Cork at the same time, mm -hmm. yes. But uh, my early recollections really don't go back so very far, but I do remember seeing myself on the screen in the picture house in Royal Avenue. It's now called The Regent. And it was one of the first bigger of the bigger cinemas in Belfast. And I remember a group of us had been at Ballyhaft races. And we thought we were frightfully smart young men in spats and bowler hats. And we saw ourselves on the screen uh, at the races. And I regret to say we got a severe shock when we saw ourselves on the screen, as most people <laughs> would, I expect. Joyce's efforts to establish the first cinema in Cork were rather cursory. With his partners, he spent only five rainy, dreary hours mooning about the city, as he said himself. Mrs Nancy Allett told us about the earliest cinema actually opened there. The first cinema was the, what we call the Assems, the assembly rooms, which was in the South Mall. And uh, when I was a very small uh, child, we used to be sent down every Saturday afternoon, myself and my younger sister and my two young brothers, and we went on to the SMs, which, uh, which was an absolutely magical world for us. And um, 
we uh, we used to go in and it was a very intimate kind of a cinema because we knew everybody. We used to chat to the uh, woman who used to sell the tickets and she used to tell us what the picture was like. And then we'd, we'd go up the, the side corridor and we'd have a chat with the girls who took our tickets. And then we'd go in and we'd greet all the other uh, people who used to go every Saturday afternoon. And we used to wait then with bated breath for Miss Murphy to arrive out to play on the piano. And we thought she had the most wonderful job in the world because there she was. She didn't have to pay any sixpences. And she could yeah. see the pictures every night of the <laughs> week. Before the outbreak of World War I, there were therefore quite a few full-time cinemas and converted halls in the principal Irish cities. But it was really only during the war years that any films produced in Ireland by an Irish company were available for showing in them. The McNamara Feature Film Company of America had made a film in Ireland in 1914 called Ireland a Nation and purporting to tell the story of Robert Emmett. But it was not until 1916 that the first Irish-based film company got to work. The Film Company of Ireland was established in the early part of that year by a remarkable Irish-American lawyer-diplomat who was related by marriage to the well-known Irish writer and broadcaster Stephen Wren. I was about 16 or so at the time, or less, 15 or 16. And my aunt married this uh, Irish-American, James Mark Sullivan, the Honourable James Mark Sullivan, he was a judge, who had come over to Ireland on a sentimental journey and uh, stayed in our house in Strand House, Limerick, which... Uh, belonged to the Omars. My aunt was Ellen O'Mara, Nell O'Mara. And uh, he was the most colourful man, the most attractive man, very um, distinguished in appearance. He was mistaken once or twice for G.K. Cheston, which gave him great glee. He was enormously fat, and he had very short legs, and uh, he was grotesque, really. A huge head, like Cheston, a huge lionite head and he was a very war um, um, ribbon out of his glasses and wore beautifully jewel cuffs and uh, links and uh, studs and everything else and in every way he was glamorous. He was a Tamari Haller uh, politician in America and uh, he was um, a very great orator, a very good orator in the old school. This is a um, we heard him speak and we know that he was an orator walking up and down the, the rooms in our house. And we all loved him. He, he didn't know the meaning of money, just the, the, the thing that passed to your hand. He couldn't just hold it. Um, he was the, the very soul of generosity. Gave away everything, anything. And we, as young people, myself and my brother and sister, adored him because he was the, he was the uncle of any of these dreams. Um, so I don't know how the film idea came along, but it, it did come along because he was fresh back from America where the film was the thing and Charlie Chaplin was a household word and probably Mary Pickford. And uh, he was terribly impressed by Irish scenery as uh, Irish Americans are and he couldn't get over the, the beauty of the country and apparently he didn't think, he didn't pause to think that the climate wasn't ideal for picture taking. But the scenery was ideal, and in the handout which I have here, which you printed, he does mention this beautiful lakes and mountains, etc. This apparently was one of his um, reasons. 
Then uh, uh, they got going. It was the most amateurish thing you can possibly imagine, and it caused a great excitement. Um, it caused tremendous excitement amongst the people who had something to sell, either actors or actresses, or people who had written books and thought that they could get their books converted, other stories in their books converted into scenarios. James Mark Sullivan and the Film Company of Ireland had an office in Dame Street, Dublin, with a man called Justice as secretary, and they employed a number of Abbey Theatre actors headed by J.M. Kerrigan. Uh, this made good sense. He, he, he saw the Abbey was going pretty strong at the time, and they were available in summer. The Abbey season apparently wasn't an all-year-round one, though I stand, you can correct me about that if I'm wrong. But anyway, he got these Abbey a- actors and actresses, and um, he, he he must have paid them, and he got this Justin who had his head screwed on, and he got a few other businessmen, including J.J. Welch, who was later a minister, and he had a, a, the people who in, in Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin and he was very much mixed up in it, because my family was, and James Sullivan was also. He was run into jail during the 1916 insurrection for a short time. Um, the films began with small ones, one real ones, and went on to two and three and four and three real ones, but I only come in at knock to go. Well, maybe you could mention some of them there uh, yes. from that catalogue. Well, it, if these, this is chronologically correct, it's the O'Neill of the Glens, which was uh, three reels, and the Miser's Gift, which was two reels, Woman's Wit, Food of Love, An Unfair Love Affair, A Girl of Glen Bay, Widow Alone, The Eleventh Hour, Puck Fair Romance, and finally on this list is Nocknagow. Nocknagow, based on the Charles Kickham story, was the big film company of Ireland production of 1917. Fred O'Donovan, who was afterwards a television producer with the BBC, directed it, and much of it was shot around Clonmel in County Tipperary by an Englishman, William Moser. The man who used to work the cameras was, was a, an Englishman, a cockney. He used to wear his cap back to front and... Um, he always had a cigarette in his the mouth. The style of the best directors, I suppose, yes. and cameramen. Yes, <laughs> it was uh, all very comical when you come to think of it, because it was all very rus- rustic bit of Hollywood. Did Hollywood exist in those days? But anyway, it was uh, down to the very... Um, it was a primitive. But this chap, anyway, used to saunter in and out and listen to the stuff going on, and he couldn't make head in the tail of them. Story of Knock to Go, because he was... Um, as I say, cocky and probably brought up in a great city in England, and um, not a Catholic, of course. And there's one scene in Knocknagall on on uh, having a station in the house, and of course every Irish person knew at that time, probably knows still, that that was a, a, a mass and um, in, was held in the houses in, in turn. And uh, he pricked up his ears and he said, "Once this I hear about a station, that'll be very hard to put on." He, he immediately <laughs> visualised a, a railway station. So he was hushed up, and they decided they'd exclude the station anyway, which was too difficult. But they'd excluded a lot of things. I should say my my part was that son of Phil Lahey. Phil Lahey was the drunk. His wife's name was Hanora, and he's the, my sister's name was Nora. And then, if I can think of my own name, <laughs> Joe, perhaps. And uh, I, uh, Nora was an invalid in an invalid's chair, and I was the good brother, and I used to go up and talk to her. And, um, and your brother Michael was in it as well. So he, uh, 
So he tells me. Uh, he must have been in another part of it. It was, it was very long. I don't remember my Valentine mail, but he must have been there. And I suppose I was sent home when, my, uh, when I'd done my bit. And Matt the Thrasher was Brian McGowan. A fine Otherwise, man. Jim Smith, was it? His yes, name was. Yeah, yeah. Um, did he translate to McGowan? Isn't Smith and McGowan? That's right, yes. yes. Or, except that he called himself Brian McGowan. I see. I see. Yes. Well, anyway, he was a hero. He was a fine man in my eyes. And he... he, he they all... Um, we had a, a closed apartment, a man who supplied us with garments, and he always got the best breeches, knee breeches, and the, the best of everything. I got knee breeches, too, but they were rather hand-me-downs. But uh, uh, he, he was always well-dressed, and the makeup was pretty good, too, I'd say. Um, I remember him vividly, of course, and I remember many Breffney, of them. Breffney O'Rourke, for example. Well, is he the man I'm trying to... Uh, yes, uh, he is the man. I'm, uh, is that the man? Yes, yes, that's the man I remember well. Breffney O'Rourke was the stepfather of a five-year-old boy, Cyril Cusick, who in Knocknagow played the part of a farmer's son in an eviction scene. Michal McLeomore, no longer a child actor, was now playing more mature parts. You, you did play in the Irish productions. You, you mentioned that, that you were in Knocknagow. I was. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> in the face on the cutting room floor. Yes, I lost everything there. Yeah. But I was only cast as a policeman. Yeah. And as I was, in fact, only 17 and looked yeah. about 14. Yeah. I've always looked a little younger than I was, or I yeah. am, I think. Yeah. yeah. And in those days, yeah. it was rather remarkable. And Fred O'Donovan, who was directing the great Abbey actor, yeah. I remember him having fits of laughter when he saw me turning up in makeup yeah. on the set, somewhere near Clonmelden, yeah. in the in the Valley of Slievenamon, I yeah. think it was, yeah. when I first incidentally met Cyril Cusick. We met together at Mass, and I was 17 and he was 10, as far as oh, I remember, yeah. yes. Yeah. And we met at Mass there in... In Mullinahone, yeah, which is near Knocknaga, uh, which yeah. is near Knocknaman, yeah, and um, we were working on that film at the time. Michal McLeomore was to take part in 1925 in another Irish-made film, Land of Our Fathers, and F. J. McCormick was another of our well-known actors who appeared in films during those years. The Film Company of Ireland lasted until 1922, and while other Irish companies were also active. It can claim to have been the most concerted effort to establish a native film industry during the silent period. The coming of sound created a completely new situation for Irish filmmakers, and we hope to do another programme on that aspect of our film history and on the vital question of a national film archive, raised so compellingly by Liam O'Leary's Cinema Ireland exhibition, which closes in Trinity College, Dublin, on Saturday next.